Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session, Is Privacy Dead in the Digital Age? Featuring Anne Ali, Ellen Broad and Matthew Condon in conversation with Jennifer Rayner. Recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you very much for being here, and I apologise in advance for my voice, which is very slightly hoarse, but hopefully we'll have a good discussion regardless. If I could start off by introducing our panel today. Ellen Broad is an independent consultant and an expert in data sharing, open data and AI ethics. Her book, Made by Humans, has just been released in the last few weeks, and I'm very fortunate to have had a bit of a sneaky preview because it's a really thoughtful and quite challenging work that invites us to take a step back and question where humans fit into the world of AI. Moving down our panel, Anne Ali is the first-term federal member for the seat of Cowan in Western Australia. But before entering the federal parliament, Anne was one of Australia's leading experts on terrorism and countering radical extremism. Her lively new book, Finding My Place, tells of her experiences migrating from uh, Egypt as a child and also finding her passion for helping young people at risk of radicalisation. So welcome, Anne. And Matthew Condon is a journalist with the Courier Mail, as well as the author of several novels, short fiction collections and non-fiction works, so a bit of a renaissance man. Uh, his latest true crime book is All Fall Down, which concludes a trilogy of books on corruption in the Queensland police force and the graft of the Bjorki Peterson era, so some pretty heavy stuff. But our topic today is, is privacy dead in the digital age? And I'd like to start by getting the views of each of our panellists on one fairly threshold question, which is, have our views on privacy as a community and as individuals actually fundamentally changed? Or is that just something that the purveyors of online social media type platforms tell us to make collecting our data seem okay? Ellen. So... It is definitely the case that privacy is a living value. It evolves. It's also mediated by culture, by geographical location. I lived in the Netherlands for a little while, and one of the things that used to shock me all the time was that nobody has curtains. So you could be walking along the street and be looking into a child's bedroom. And to me, as an Australian, that was quite shocking. <laughs> uh, but different cultures have different approaches to both physical privacy um, family privacy, phys uh, digital privacy. I definitely think that over the last decade, it has become a convenience to say that privacy no longer exists or people no longer care about it online in order to pursue greater data collection practices. Uh, I think it was uh, Mark Zuckerberg who in 2010 famously said, privacy is no longer a social norm that people value. Uh, but you have to remember that Facebook, from its inception, continuously pushed the line on what privacy meant. Uh, I don't know how many of you knew this, but the first iteration of Facebook, Face Smash, was actually taken... Uh, he, he scraped female university student profiles to create a hot or not website <laughs> and was told to take it down for privacy reasons. And then Facebook throughout the years continued to change the way people used the platform, introduced the news feed, made profiles searchable on the web, uh, introduced automatic recognition of photo, uh, faces in photographs. And each time the argument that, well, people were still using the platform, 
if people are still using the platform, they must not care, was kind of um, pushed and pushed. But I think what we're seeing now, particularly in the last couple of years, is that privacy discussions have become part of our mainstream political debate. We're having conversations around our dinner table about my health record and should I opt out. We're talking about Cambridge Analytica. So I think it's starting to crumble that um, line that people don't care about it and will move on. I think that's a really, really good starting point. Thank you, Ellen. But I would also add that there is a, um, there are generational differences in privacy as well. So I look at some of the things that my um, my sons who grew up in an era of Facebook or their friends post on their Facebook feeds, um, and they're not the kinds of things that I might I might post on there. Uh, and I'm constantly saying, you know, why would you post that? You know, who cares what colour underwear you're wearing every day? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that, that there is a generational difference in what constitutes privacy, but the sharing of information, I think we need to... Um, deconstruct the, the discussion uh, and really talk about privacy versus confidentiality versus what is it that you want to share, what kind of inf information sharing and and, um, and and I think that that's what um, social media has presented to us, that there is, a, there is a moment now where we need to step back and discuss these things and talk about privacy versus confidentiality versus control over your own information in terms of what you do want to share and what you don't want to share. Um, uh, I also think this, this issue of privacy and confidentiality needs to be teased out a little bit more. Uh, the difference between um, having information out there and then confidentiality being what is being done with that information. How is that information used or how are your details kept confidential even though you may have wavered your privacy in allowing access to that data as well. I don't think the conversation has fully matured because I think this is a relatively new thing and I think as we progress and as these issues come to the fore more and as we continue to have those dinner table conversations and people continue to raise, um, raise awareness of this, these conversations will be will be had. Matthew, as a journalist, perhaps you've, or your industry at least, has always had a slightly different conception of privacy than others, or yes, more of a I focus mean, on where that lies? I would love to walk away today and have a, a better definition of what hmm. privacy is in the, in the contemporary world. Um, I both loathe privacy because it can obstruct my research, <laughs> and I respect it because I respect the, eth my, the ethics of my profession. So there is a permanent chafing dilemma. In my research, historical research, for example, I will go down to the newspaper library and take great joy. I know this is how much a dag I am. Uh, and I will find enormous amounts of information in old phone books from the 1960s. And riffling through there for information, I will see in there, for example, the name of the police commissioner of the day, 1965. There is his full rank and name. There is his pr pr private address. And there is his phone number. What was the definition of privacy in 1965? I mean, it, this is the fact is that his name is in there so that people can communicate with him. Today we have Twitter and Facebook and mobile phones. So has privacy and its definition changed 
over time? And are we, are we sort of bleating about nothing, essentially? And I find that interesting, particularly in the, um, in the political field. And because it, with the Barnaby Joyce, what happened with Barnaby Joyce and what's now happening um, with uh, um, allegations and revelations about Emma Hassar, this question about privacy of public figures and how much privacy are politicians, for example, as public figures entitled to? What's the? Is there a line that's, that's being crossed when uh, the media, for example, reports about things like uh, private affairs of, of public figures? Um, even the, the citizenship stuff, you know, when they told us that we had to give out all of this information to be put on a, on a citizenship register, I made the point that some of this information was extremely private. So if you go onto this citizenship register, you've got my mother's maiden name, my place of birth, my birthday, um, my father's name, my father's place of birth, because this is all the stuff that I had to put into uh, the renounce, renunciation of citizenship, um, my grandfather's name, where my parents lived, where I was born, and I made the point that there's enough information there to steal identity. To guess your passwords. Uh, absolutely, and sure enough, um, in just after Christmas um, or, or just after New Year this year, somebody tried to steal my phone number. So I got a, I couldn't make calls on my phone and it turned out that somebody had used information like my birthday and my mother's maiden name to try and get my personal phone number transferred to another carrier and use my personal phone number. So there, there's, a, there's another conversation here, that, an underlying conversation about how much privacy do we keep for public figures or how, how much privacy are they entitled to as well? Mm. And it's an interesting... I mean, it, it links to a point, Ellen, that you make in your book. I mean, this is quite an extreme example mm. of the kind of information that's out there. But you talk in your book, Ellen, about people shedding data mm. with every interaction that they have, whether you're on Facebook or you're using a credit card or you are watching Netflix. Basically, we go through our lives now just shedding data and information all the time. And you make the point that it has actually brought about a shift from a uh, ask once, use once sort of scenario for the data, where you collect it for a particular reason and you get permission for that particular reason, to a kind of ask once, use often approach, where you can use the same data for a whole range of purposes. And I'm interested in whether you think our privacy can be more or less invaded based on how the data is used. It's not the fact of its use, but the ways in which it gets used. So I think a huge shift for us has been the move to digital data. And the examples like that, that Anne is giving about, this is not a register that you have to go to Parliament House, sign a book and have a look at on paper. It is accessible immediately to a much wider group of people and can be combined with other kinds of information relatively easily because the shift from analog and physical to those um, records where we might have recorded a lot more information about an individual um, and, and put in archives that yes, the public could access, but your actual level of access as an individual was quite difficult to get at, to digitization, to lots of data. And I think that to the point about control and our definitions of privacy and how they're changing, one of the consequences of the move to a kind of a reuse culture, which I don't, on, in lots of other ways, having digital data and powerful computers has helped us do really valuable things with data. So I am not saying the move to digital has been um, 
all negative for us, but for personal data, what we have seen happen is um, I think our conception of privacy moving away from in terms of physical access to feelings of control. So are you still able to control what happens to your data after you do something with it? Because for example, um, in the context of our social media discussions, I talk a little bit in the book about like, I'm a millennial, I grew up on social media and people quite often conflate social media discussions with publishing in a newspaper, mm -hmm. for example. When actually in a lot of social media settings, you're talking to a circle of friends, you're not trying to have a conversation necessarily for the world to hear. If you're on Facebook, it's your friends, your family, the more your family gets on it, the less you start using <laughs> Facebook. But um, it's about where you think it's going to go after that. So in the context of my health record, you can see a lot of the unease. It's not necessarily about the idea of a health database. It's about, hang on, insurers might use it. Uh, if I give information to a doctor, does that mean this, these other entities could use it and how might they use it and could they use it against me? In the context of social media, we're starting to have conversations like, could we use it to determine a person's suitability for a job? Um, and so our discussions around privacy become much less about proximity of access because access in a digital world is very easy to achieve. Um, for a politician, it reduces your ability to access privacy quite a bit, and it instead becomes a discussion around control. What should you be able to control? And so a question for Anne and Matt in that context then, on the point about control, how feasible or practical is it to actually get someone's consent every time you want to make use of some of the information that they've put out there or that is available about them now in this digital world? Is there is there really a need for every single individual use to be consented to or is there sort of a spectrum of consents, do you think? Um, before I answer that, Anne, you're talking about your um, genealogy essentially being open to the public. It's not that difficult as a journalist and a researcher to actually construct a stranger's family tree mm. with the right tools that are available to everybody. Mm. Um, mm. And to look at the area of your question, I was, you were talking about Facebook, maybe Twitter in relation to what your, the people you choose to see that information. But when they share that, when individuals share that, it's beyond one's control, is it not? I mean, a tweet can go around the world in 10 minutes. Mm. So um, the issue of control is um, unanswerable, mm. is it not? So I think we're going to have to renegotiate some kinds of control in social media settings. So the one, the first is um, how are your actual settings set up on your social media account? It's not the case in all instances that when you share something, it goes around the world. But there is an increasing discussion around the challenge of ending up on social media, whether you choose to or not. So the recent Plain Bay, I'm not sure how many of you saw the Plain Bay story, where a stranger live tweeted and took photographs of what she thought was an emerging love story on a plane of two strangers in front of her. She took photographs, she tweeted about their conversation, she, um, and it went viral around the world, but it was two individuals that had no consent 
to their participation on social media. The woman in particular, she was immediately doxxed. As you say, you can construct profiles of people using social media and other kinds of information already online. Doxing someone is uh, surfacing their personal information and sharing it with people so that they receive phone calls and that kind of thing. But it, what was really interesting to me about that and shows me how much we're starting to rethink that uncontrollable aspect on social media is what started off as a Good Morning America story of this wonderful love story between two strangers quickly became a very serious discussion about whether these individuals had consented to information about them being shared. And the woman who had shared all of this information ended up having to apologize mm. and take it all down. And I wonder if over time, some forms of control will, uh, in both in terms of social norms, that it will become unacceptable to do certain things. I'd like to see that happen. <laughs> I mean, in terms of consent, I'm an old-fashioned yep. journalist, and of course, uh, I'm a great believer in seeking consent yep. for use. But you know, say that to my 13-year-old son. You know, it's a different generation. I think this kind of comes down to questions about the kind of the policing of 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 the internet. I think you know the example that you gave there is of of somebody um, sharing something without consent. Um, that person, of course, not being a professional. Of course, when you speak to a journalist, for example, there is a level of consent that you have there. If somebody's taking your photo, if you're doing a, a, an event, you sign off consent for your image to be used and those kinds of that kind of um, that kind of thing but you know and you see it a lot you see Facebook um, videos of somebody filming somebody having a racist rant for example and then that that person get do gets doxxed that's the word you use doxxed doxxed I'm going to use that word in future <laughs> <laughs> and sound all smart like I know what I'm talking about um, uh, and so but in terms of the the, the question that you asked um, originally about um, levels of consent, I think this is where the confidentiality, where we have to have a conversation about confidentiality, because you may well consent to your data being used for a particular purpose, but what they then do with that data and how who they pass that on to is the confidentiality aspect of privacy. Um, Did you want to speak a little bit more about what you see as the distinction between those things? Um, well, I think I was doing some work on this with Swansea University, of all places, um, uh, prior to um, um, becoming a politician and joining the dark side. But um, it, it really is... So privacy is the, the actual putting out of your information and your data, and then confidentiality is how that data is used. So I may well have an agreement with an organisation that uh, um, I'm giving you this information, I'm giving you this data, it may be my doctor or whatever. Uh, there's an understanding there that what my doctor or what that organisation does with that data is only for their own purposes and they will keep that data confidential. It will be for a, um, a, a particular purpose. It's like um, academics when we do research, uh, if we're doing qualitative research, for example, we'll go and have a conversation with someone, we'll have a discussion with them about the confidentiality of the information, that we will not share that information, that that information will only be used for the purposes of research and we will not, uh, we will not name them. We will redact any information that may identify them. So that's what confidentiality is, being um, unidentified, having 
um, your personal details redacted, but the 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 use of your data being very clear to you, what is your data being used for, and you having control or at least some kind of assurance or guarantee that your data is being used for a specific purpose and not for a purpose beyond that. Which is probably an interesting segue into some work that you've mm. done previously. Uh, as you say, um, in your academic career prior to joining the parliament, I understand one of the projects that you actually worked on was a social media scraping tool which could go through people's Facebook page, for example, and identify signs of emerging extremism mm. where they were being radicalised. Mm. And there is a really interesting conversation going on at the moment in Australia and around the world about privacy versus security. Should we have to give up some of our privacy in order to feel safe or to be kept safe. Mm. So did you want to speak a little bit about that work and how you see the tension yeah. between those things? Yeah, there's a, there's an interesting story behind that, that piece of work, that research that we did, because it started in February 2015 and I was at I was in Washington um, at the White House and I got a phone call from a family in Perth whose son had left to go and fight with ISIS. And they basically said, Anne, we need you. Um, we need your assistance. Our son has left to go and fight for ISIS. I said, look, I'm in Washington at the moment. As soon as I land in Perth, we'll come and see you. Um, and then when I hung up the phone, I thought, oh, I know that name. I remember that name. So I, I pulled up my computer and I'd taken screenshots of some Facebook conversations that I'd been having with some young men uh, uh, from a from a, um, who, who had been followers of a particular uh, radical preacher in Perth. And sure enough, there was this young fellow who had just gone to fight for ISIS about four or five months posting up on this Facebook discussion thread that um, he believed in the Islamic State and he believed it was his duty to go over and fight and he was determined to go and do that. So it raised... And then I started looking at other research and invariably what I found was that after a terrorist attack, um, law enforcement would go onto the social media pages because uh, it's become a source of human intelligence now to look at people's social media pages and look at what they have been posting and um, look at the sentiment that they um, they express on their Facebook posts, but also um, social analysis of all their connections and their associates. Um, and uh, I found that that um, a, a, a quite a lot, a majority of people who had committed violent acts had actually posted about it on some form of social media, on Facebook. Uh, so I uh, started to look at this project of how can we look at somebody's Facebook profile and are there any indicators of online behaviour that may be warning, warning signals or triggers to a potential act of violence, uh, looking at things like fixation and leakage were the two big ones. If somebody's fixated with an organisation or fixated with a cause, fixated with, for example, the Islamic State or fixated with, for example, a white ring, a right-wing right um, white supremacist cause, the kinds of um, things that they're liking on Facebook, the kinds of things that they're saying on Facebook, the things that they're making public about themselves about their thoughts and their ideologies and where they're headed um, and, and whether or not they're actually leaking an intent to commit 
an act of terror or commit an act of violence. So I undertook this research with the the UK, with an organisation in the United Kingdom. And just in the uh, six-month period in which we did research, we um, uncovered five five operatives, five, five people who were operative at the operative stage, meaning that they were planning and preparing for an act of violence. Um, so we thought, oh, well, there's, there's something in this and, and um, started to develop a more coherent framework for uh, looking at online behaviours uh, by uh, looking at people's Facebook. The thing with Facebook, though, is that, that um, yes, you can have privacy settings around Facebook. There are ways of getting around that, though, by because if you post something on your private Facebook and one of your friends shares it and their Facebook is public, then you can actually get around that. So you do not have actual complete control about your privacy settings on Facebook. Um, uh, and um, so this question of um, security and, 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 and privacy, I think one of the things that... Did the, the, the latest thing with um, Cambridge Analytica and the, the um, Facebook stuff, a lot of people were saying, well, it's a, free, it's a free platform. And if you want to use a free platform, then you have to accept that the, the stuff that you put out there is no longer private. That was one of the, the attitudes that I was, I was reading from, from um, the people that I spoke to. Uh, but, but, you know, it was, it was like you said, Ellen, that you know, Facebook has encouraged you to be more and more open, to be more and more sharing, to, be, to, to give out more and more information. And I'm, I'm constantly astounded at some of the things that people post on their Facebook, the kinds of levels of details. And I'm, I'm constantly ringing up friends and saying, you know you've just posted on your Facebook that you're home alone in the middle of the night and your family's gone overseas. Take it off. Take it off right now, or you know where you are on holiday, or who you're with. Um, uh, so I think, um, given now that we live in a in a digital age and the the nature of communication has changed, more and more uh, organised crime, transnational terrorism, and transnational organised crime is is enabled by digital. Um, technologies and communication platforms by encryption, uh, in encrypted communication services. A good example is uh, quite recently a uh, terror cell in, in Indonesia uh, hacked into a, um, an organisation in, an, in another country and stole data of uh, credit card, credit card data, and then sold it on the internet, um, on, the, on the dark web, uh, for digital currencies, for bitcoins, and managed to raise six hundred thousand US dollars in preparation for a terrorist attack. So, the more and more organised crime and terrorism moves to utilising social media, digital currencies, the dark web, encrypted communication services, the more and more law enforcement also has to. Be working in that space. 
So a question then to our other panellists, how do we think about where the line is on those things then between if we accept that law enforcement is going to need to be more active in some of these spaces to keep us safe? Now, I guess that's one premise that people could agree or disagree with. But then a sort of secondary step to that, who decides where the line is on what's acceptable and what's not and what's too invasive uh, in the name of security? I can kick us off. I think uh, we were you talking beforehand about the answer to every question is kind of it's complicated. <laughs> um, I think that it's it's actually it's quite unfortunate to talk in terms of lines mm. as though there is like clear line or some boundary that if we cross over that's it, because as Anne has rightly pointed out, when you have um, when you have ecosystems that are moving into personal social networks who are utilizing the infrastructure of the web you want law enforcement to be in those spaces as well you want them to be able to do that I think it is always contextual and it is about nuance uh, some of the bigger questions that we're starting to ask now are not so much, I think, and perhaps this is just coming from working in AI, but not so much about what more are we going to collect, but how are we going to use the information that we have? Uh, a big example being facial recognition technology. Uh, in Australia, we have the National Facial Recognition Database being built using driver's license photos from every state and territory. One of the things that I reflect on in the book and is getting a lot of attention in the UK and the US, not so much in Australia right now, are the flaws in facial recognition technology, the bias in facial recognition technology, that they struggle to identify um, dark-skinned individuals uh, as much as they can identify white-skinned individuals, that women are harder to identify. So I think our questions become not so much should they be able to see that. I think journalists would have very strong opinions about when law enforcement should be able to access, for example, in confidential information about sources. Uh, I'm sure there are nuances, but I think quite a lot about when is it okay to use the information that we can technically access. There's lots of information that we can technically access, when should we use it and for what purpose? And who's using it? <laughs> and how are they using it? And why are they... There's a whole lot of questions around it. And I think this is a... You know, this um, thing around information and bias is not something that's just new to the digital age. I think uh, eradicating bias, particularly in law enforcement, is a, a long-term project. Um, and and not, not just specific to things like facial recognition. <laughs> I wanted to revisit something. That was the story of the love affair in the plane. Plane Bay. Yes. What was it called? <clears throat> um, plane Bay. B-A-E. Oh. Another millennial. <laughs> so I'm interested in when in the world that actually became an interesting story for people to digest. <laughs> I mean, what, where did we cross that line? What is substantial and interesting information and what is just sheer and utter crap? Um, ask anyway, the, ask to, the morning shows. But, you know, what, what, what I'm, I'm, you know, all I do is raise my kids and write books. So, and I post photos of my charcoal barbecue to a mate of mine in Sydney <laughs> on Facebook. What there's no interesting data that anyone really could harvest from me, and I'm sure I'm the same as many hundreds know, of millions of people around the world. Charcoal chicken says a lot charcoal about chicken, you. Charcoal chicken, but <laughs> sugar. <Yeah. laughs> so. 
I wouldn't be any different to hundreds of millions of people around the world, surely. Well, I, th I think we've got to um, ask this, this question in the context of um, celebrity and what celebrity means. I mean, when you look at um, uh, um, Kylie Jenner is one of the richest young people in, in the US and for every photo that she tweets, she gets paid a million dollars for a photo. And a million dollars, or not tweets, Instagram. And when she said, she said one day WhatsApp is over, it's another, um, a lot of you probably use WhatsApp to keep, in, she said WhatsApp's over and it lost a huge amount of the share price. Yeah, it plummeted <laughs> in share prices and this idea of social media influences and what does celebrity mean these days if you look at uh, someone can, can um, uh, you know, be so influential and make a, a hell of a lot of money uh, by just posing a picture of themselves in a bikini. That took wouldn't work for me, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's into something on the internet. <laughs> Matt, to come back to that question about security and privacy, mm. journalists tend to be some of those who are the strongest mm. about protecting that spectrum. If it's not a line, it's definitely a spectrum. Do, do you worry about the way that debate is going in Australia at the moment, that we are ceding a lot of ground on privacy in the name of security? Well, yes and no. I mean, certainly in my profession and with my sacrosanct sources that I do have, um, um, you know, I will protect them forever. But um, if it comes to national security, um, that may be a different matter. Um, yeah, I don't know. So switching gears very slightly then, I do want to come to an issue that you have actually raised in some of our previous conversations ahead of today, because it goes to the question of uh, privacy in an analogue world and that translation across to a digital world. So you've talked about how in the course of trying to research some of your books, you're relying a lot on archival material, material that, uh, as we've mentioned before, is stored away in boxes somewhere and you can potentially physically access it, but you have to go down to an archive somewhere somewhere and get it, or in some cases you actually even still can't get it because it's locked up, it's protected, and there are time restrictions on when you can use it. Do you think it can actually be the case that there are people who are, you know, dead and gone, whose privacy is offered more protection in yeah. that analogue world than people who are very active now and are acting in, an, in a digital world? Oh, very much so. This is sort of retrospective privacy, and my weekly and monthly nightmare is to... Um, to get access to historical documents, not just in Queensland, but across Australia. But specifically in Queensland, for example, um, if I want to get the full police record of Police Commissioner Frank Bischoff, who died in 1979 and was um, deposed as commissioner in 1969, um, there is a 100-year non-publication order on his file uh, and that whenever uh, um, an investigating body opens that file for whatever purpose, for example, the Fitzgerald Inquiry in 1987, the 100 years reignites from that date. So you see this constant pattern of, of figures, that, contentious figures that I'm trying to, to get these public records 
into daylight so we can understand historical stories. And all the crucial figures, the most important ones that I'm trying to investigate, are the ones with 65 or 100 year blocks wow. on them. So um, it, it is an absolute nightmare. Who was the arbiter? Who made the decision for the 100 years? Why is the 100 years there? Why is it so difficult to access ostensibly public records? The argument would be it's to protect um, the, the, na the names of, of um, people in those files. They may still be alive. It may affect their reputation. I mean, you know, give me a break. This is decades later trying to understand um, an important historical narrative um, for my community, and I am denied access to that information. Um, it is a constant problem. Mm. Question for both Anne and Ellen, I think, off the back of that. We don't make as much of an effort in the digital world necessarily to archive things as was previously the case in, in an analogue sort of world. So how important do you think it actually is to preserve our digital uh, presence? And then as a corollary of that, who should actually have the responsibility or the power for pressing the delete key? Should it always be the individual who owns that data or should there be some other process that sits around it? So I think a couple of things. Um, one is that it is not... So I used to work a lot with libraries and archives. Uh, I talk a little bit about them in the book. But they actually, trying to figure out how to preserve our digital databases, our online interactions, as well as our digitised government records, is a huge challenge. We may have less access in the long term to the information that we're generating now in digital spaces than paper records. Because the good thing about paper from a preservation perspective is it doesn't change. You can keep preserving paper using the same tools and techniques and know that it's going to be okay for the next you know, 150, 200 years, whereas our digital technologies change every 10, 20 years. So how do you preserve for 100 years? You're not even going to let anyone look at it for 100 years. How do you even conceptualise how we make that accessible? Uh, the One of the um, points about Facebook and that it is a free service, a lot of the platforms that we use are providing us with archiving. Mm. We, I have access. I've been on Facebook now since I was a teenager. That's 10 years of photos that were taken on multiple devices mm. with different technologies that are all instantaneously accessible to me at a high quality consistently. But Facebook's not going to be around forever. Mm. Uh, That's why I take a lot of screenshots. Screenshots <laughs> is my archiving tool. Right. And, and back them up, I hope, to... Oh, no. Do I have to back them up? <laughs> we'll but that is a real question that we're grappling with is, A, a lot of this information is actually being archived by private companies yeah. who have no public interest archiving responsibility mm -hmm. and wouldn't see that as part of their role. Yeah. But then what does that mean for us as a public? What actual records of culture and of key individuals will we have a hundred years from now and what mm. we'll be able to look at. Yeah, I know. Listening to you speak, and I'm like, I think of like I'm a dinosaur. So I've seen VHS. I've, actually, if I go through my life, I've seen colour TV, VHS. Do everyone remember the old VHS? First there was PAL and then there was VHS and then there were the um, discs and then from discs we went to... Um, 
CD-ROMs. CD-ROMs, and then we had uh, the the sticks that you you take around and USBs. USBs, and now <laughs> <laughs> I'm so digitally literate. Um, and and now everything is. But I think this idea of in, instantaneous thing has positioned us all in a, in a kind of a different. Um, in a different context, this in, in I don't know, I'm going to make up a word now and I'm going to call it instantaneity of the world, of, 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 of digital, you know, everything is right here, right now. We've become witnesses to a lot of things. We are now put in a position of witness. And it, it, it's, a, it's a new way of positioning ourselves and how we view the world and how we see the world. And I see this, I'll refer to this in the context of my, um, my work in, in counter-terrorism, where, you know, if there was an, a terrorist attack happened and I would uh, make a commentary on it and I'd get floods of email from people saying, you don't know what you're, talk about. you're talking about, um, uh, and, and they position themselves as experts because they'd witnessed it. Through the magic of screen and through the magic of, of the internet, we are there now, we can see things in real time, we have become witnesses. And there's a trauma that comes with being a witness, particularly a witness to violence and a witness to mass casualty attacks like terrorism. Um, and, and so coming back to the whole idea of, 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 of privacy, this it's not just about controlling our own information. It's about controlling everything that's that um, comes to us. I mean, how many people here have had a conversation with a friend over dinner and the next minute on their Facebook feed there's an advertisement for what you were talking about? Spooky, isn't it? Right? So for some people that might be like, I think, you know, is that a convenience thing that, oh, I was thinking about buying a new pair of red boots and, oh, look, there's an advertisement for red boots on my Facebook feed, but I think for a lot of us, it's it feels like an invasion of privacy. It feels like our discussions are being watched. Um, so I think you know, looking at the new kind of ecology that we live in, and this, you know, we're witnesses. We're more in to all of this, but at the same time, there's this idea of we're also being watched, and we're we're, we're operating in a space where everyone can see, everyone can do, but we can also see and do. How important is the regulatory context in that? Because we tend to assume that if companies can invent something, or what has tended to be the case with these digital companies, is if they can invent something, they're pretty much allowed to go out and deploy it until fairly recently. And you talk in the book about some of the work that the European Union has been doing in particular to rein some of that in and to actually say, no, just because you can invent it doesn't mean you can deploy it this way. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Yes, and I also wanted to pick up on the point that you made about deletion. So um, first point is I think in most industries you have these cycles of you run very fast, you innovate, you break things in the technology industry parlance, but you, you innovate, you move very quickly and then eventually there comes a point where it has to be reined in a little bit. There needs to be safeguards put around it. And we look at this in things like the um, development of electricity, aviation, uh, telecommunications. You start off with um, go for leather and then you uh, put in rules around it to kind of pull it back in and make sure that people aren't unduly harmed. 
the G so in the in the European Union, they have introduced the General Data Protection Regulation, which uh, really reframes privacy rights in terms of the individual. It introduces uh, rights to understand how decisions are made about you using data and automated systems, a right to access your data and take it with you somewhere else if you're using online platforms. It also has a right to be forgotten which is a kind of right of deletion. But I want to talk about it very briefly because it's that I don't think it is necessarily the case that you always want to allow people to delete data for some of the reasons that Matt is talking about. When you're trying to research an individual with a particular past, their ability to erase reference to it uh, is something that we should take very seriously. And the right to be forgotten actually emerged out of court cases in Spain where it was an individual who had insider, trader, insider trading convictions and he wanted them removed from Google search results because when he went to go back into the financial services industry, they were showing up alongside his name. And that was how the right to be forgotten emerged. And you can already see that while it's intended for individuals, you know, for us to move away from Facebook and know that they're not, they don't have our data anymore, they can't um, use it for anything else, it's also going to be used to erase parts of our history that while we as individuals might like to forget them, as a society there may be a public interest in recording it and having access to it. So I think, look, the GDPR does a lot of great things in terms of reframing our rights to privacy, but things like when and how data should be deleted, we think very carefully about what that means. There was, um, this is, a, it's on topic, but I've, I've just been thinking about this for the last few minutes. As a journalist and a consumer of news, at some point, six months, one year, I don't know when it was, but um, you will see now videos on website, news websites, certainly on YouTube, whereby you will be warned that there is graphic material ahead. And you can literally see someone, a human being, killed. Now, in terms of privacy, that is the ultimate betrayal of privacy, that an individual's death is exposed for the world to consume. So the argument is we have a world that is salivating to consume that material and yet decry the loss of their privacy. Um, it's a dichotomy I don't comprehend. Mm. But isn't that a perennial dichotomy in the media um, in general? So, you know, who sets the, who sets the news agenda? Um, the whole thing, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. That's very true, but it would, it would not be posted if it wasn't consumed. But I guess it's like, I think it's almost like human behaviour. You slow down driving past a car accident because you want to look even though you know that you should speed up. Mm. And I think it's not necessarily a dichotomy that people are happy to look at this material but still say they care about their privacy. It's that you care about your privacy as part of these overlapping, you, I also know that if you ask any individual, would you be happy if a video of yourself in, in extreme distress was posted on the web, they would be horrified. And it's not that you say, well, only one of these can be right. It's that we are human 
and we have complex inter interrelating desires. So yes, we'll slow down when we pass a car accident, but if that was us in the car accident, we'd want everyone to go away. And I think it's just, that's humans. That's what we're like. And on that human affirming note, we are out of time. Please join me in thanking our panel, Ellen Broad, Anna Lee, Matthew Condon. Their books are for sale in the bookshop. Do go a copy. They're all fantastic. And thank you very much for your time today. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.